Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and we're doing something a little bit different today. We're back in Fire's Philadelphia offices. It's the first time we've been in this studio in, I think, like three years Feels since good. pre-pandemic. It's a, it's a tight studio, and so it was hard to set up the tables and chairs and all that, but we used to do that. So when Aaron, who's behind the camera over here, was talking to me, he's like, how did we used to do this? How did we used to get six people <laughs> or five people into this office, uh, into the studio to record a podcast? So we had to kind of go back into the cobwebs of our memory to figure that out. But uh, Will was here, I yeah, believe, the last time we did I was. It. it was an honor then and it's an honor now. It's you, cozy in here. I like it. It is cozy in here. Will Creeley, of course, is FIRE's legal director. And we also have a new guest on the podcast, Aaron Terr. He is a senior program officer here at FIRE. And it was in June that I believe I came to our podcast listeners and explained FIRE's expansion. I was with Greg Lukianoff, our president and CEO. I was with Alicia Glennon, our chief operating officer. And we were talking about what we were doing. And one of the things that was kind of always part of the plan, but has become a really fun part of the plan, is these rapid res- are these rapid response meetings that we do every morning at FIRE, 9.30 a.m. FIRE's senior leadership is there. Aaron is there with us as well, working on the team. And we discuss essentially the free speech news that has come in over the last 24 hours. Having worked on college campuses for 23 years, we kind of know the issues, right? And we know our take on the issues. Of course, new things come up. But for the most part, we know where we're going. Off campus, we don't always have the work done on a lot of the issues that are, we're going to be confronted or asked to comment on or potentially litigate. So we got these 930 meetings in place with senior leadership to kind of work through them, to debate, to discuss them. Uh, and for this podcast, I wanted to recreate that feel. Now, a lot of the stuff that we're going to discuss today, we've discussed before, and we sort of have FIRE's take on, but there's been a lot of debate, some disagreement within the organization about it. And so I'm hoping to kind of recreate that and look at these issues that we've discussed in the rapid response meeting uh, from all different angles, things like Musk acquiring Twitter, PayPal threatening to fine people 2,500 bucks for spreading misinformation, uh, the New York Attorney General uh, seeking to ban live streaming in the state of New York, Charlottesville. Will was in uh, the Daily Progress in Charlottesville, Virginia, talking about a new personnel policy they have there for uh, city employees. And then potentially, if we have time, getting to some of the uh, new laws, well, one of the new laws that was passed in California protecting artistic expression uh, in criminal trials and potentially some of the um, jawboning that the government has been doing with social media companies surrounding election misinformation. So, Will, welcome back. Yeah. Aaron, welcome for the first time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good to be here. It's been a party, Nico. It's been a wild three months, you know? I mean, I'm glad to use the word fun in describing those morning meetings because my experience, and Aaron, I imagine you feel the same way, is that it is fun. 9.30 a.m., everybody's got that cup of coffee, and you're looking at headlines. You know, you maybe saw something last night before you went to bed. You maybe saw something that floated across the feed on the way in. And the experience of just getting together and hashing it out with folks well, you know, you, you know and like, right? Your colleagues and, and your trusted voices. And even then, exploring the nooks and crannies, it's been fun. The way I've described it to folks is like, 
what, what's the expansion like? I say, well, some days it's like being a kid in a candy store, right? Because for 16 years working on campus, it's kind of like, you know, campus. Free expression issues are very interesting, and it's been very exciting and satisfying to do that work. I feel honored and privileged to have done it and for so long. And it's been kind of like the leading free speech story in the United exactly. States for the past decade. You right? got it, right? And I've always said that whatever you see on campus, you're going to see on campus first, and then you're going to see it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for 15 years, been kind of looking over the fence, just off campus, thinking, boy, that's kind of fun. I wish I could get in on that. So on the good days, it feels like kid in a candy store. Like, we've got the wide range of free expression issues to talk about and engage with. And on the tough days, or the overwhelming days, because uh, there aren't too many tough days, but overwhelming maybe is the way to do it. You feel like the dog that caught the mail truck. You're like, all right, here we go. You want it off campus? You got off campus. Let's talk, you know, five issues that are all front page. Well, the, talking about the issues isn't the challenge with right. the experience. That's a fun part. That's right. why I came to fire, right? right? The challenge is the capacity and organization building yeah. that comes with it that happens off camera. People don't see that. Um, but it's very necessary for us to take the discussions from those rapid response meetings and actually implement them as part of our mission to advance free expression in America. And that's required a lot of late nights, mm -hmm. a lot of time spent diligently hiring the right people, getting them on the bus. Uh, but the rapid response meetings are, of course, a bright spot at 9.30 in the morning. They're supposed to last 15 minutes. They often go 30 <laughs> yeah, minutes. Right. Yeah. But yeah. what are you going to do? This morning, what did we talk about? We talked about Dick Durbin, uh, yeah. senator, senator from Durbin. Illinois. I'm from Illinois, outside of Chicago myself. Uh, he had a tweet, because everyone's talking about Musk and Twitter, right, mm -hmm. uh, that said, free speech does not include spreading misinformation to downplay political violence. Uh, and it was kind of funny, because Twitter itself, fact-checked it. You know, they have these these context-adding um, boxes that they put beneath some certain tweets uh, that says, no, this sort of speech is protected by the First Amendment. And then a link to Wikipedia's First Amendment page. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, that's a nice way to do it. You know, with all respect to the senator, it's just not the case, right? Mm -hmm. And as I understand it from our colleague Adam Steinbaugh in the, uh, in the 9.30 this morning, there was kind of a bipartisan, across the political divide, response to Senator Durbin saying, actually, Senator, you know, here's the deal, right? It, it is protected. And as we commented in that meeting, boy, the word downplay in that tweet could do an awful lot of damage. Yeah, sure can, right? <laughs> downplay is a, it's elastic as a rubber band. You could really stretch that one. Well, a lot of our discussions these past couple weeks, months, has obviously been about Musk and Twitter, right? That's driving a lot of the free speech conversation. Um, so, Aaron, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the whole situation, not just like the, you know, thoughts around free speech per se, but also just kind of how it's all played out, right? Mm -hmm. It's been it's been a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm I, I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic about the uh, the new regime over at Twitter with Musk at the helm. Um, I think you know I. I he, I think he said a lot of things that give reason uh, to be optimistic about, you know, the direction that the platform is going to go in. It's going to in the direction of a more free and open speech environment. Um, and I think, you know, that would be something to celebrate. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, he's he's also made some comments that maybe you know, give a little cause for concern. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about uh, his, you know, he's mentioned a couple of times that, uh, about having Twitter follow the laws of the country in, in which the service operates, uh, which makes you think, okay, well, what about um, activists and dissidents in, in countries under authoritarian regimes? Does that mean that you know their, their posts are going to be removed, uh, or perhaps even worse, that you know that Twitter would comply with the the government's request to turn over information about dissidents, right? right? So that. That would not be uh, very good for free speech, obviously. Yeah, I mean, but one, one of the questions about that is, like, 
So what do you do if you want to operate a platform for free speech in some of these foreign countries where they have laws that are restrictive of free speech? I just saw something going around the news. Um, the CEO of Rumble, which is this kind of upstart conservative competitor to YouTube, video streaming service. Mm -hmm. France has this law, or they got reached out to by French authorities, um, asking them that to take down certain posts or you know, to not allow uploads of posts of a certain category or type. I don't remember exactly what it was. And they essentially said, well, if that's what you're going to ask us to do, we as a platform that values freedom of expression, we're just not going to operate in France. Right. Now, that's not something that a lot of these social media companies that say they're for free expression, recall, you know, Twitter said it was the free speech wing of the free speech party early in its mm -hmm. heyday, you know, when it was first started. Uh, that's not something, that's not a call that they've made. They've kind of bowed in a certain sense. That Now, Twitter, not always, but certain companies for sure. Um, but they don't do what Rumble does. Two quick things on this point, because this is fascinating, Aaron, and you teed it up nicely. Over the summer, I had the pleasure of reading uh, Jillian C. York's most recent book. She's at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and she wrote a really fascinating, in-depth, almost semi-biographical piece about her experience navigating activism, digital activism, and the kind of birth and rise of social media over the years overseas, right? So she was talking to contacts in, in the uh, heat of the Arab Spring, that promising moment where it looked like social media really would fulfill, 2011. This, yeah, yeah. fulfill this promise of uh, expanding democratic access and providing a printing press for everybody, et cetera. And she talks about the way that things started to change, right? The, her contacts at Twitter stopped answering her calls. Um, the, uh, the ways that Twitter kind of walked away, in addition to Facebook and others, walked away from that promise of being the free speech wing of the free speech party. And it's really fascinating. It's very deeply reported. It's based on personal relationships. Highly recommend it if you're out there and interested in this. The second point uh, I want to raise with regard to Musk particularly and you know, the idea of law of the land and what, what this means for platforms beyond domestic borders, check out Matt Iglesias's post from last week about Musk and his... Uh, on his Substack? Yeah, on his Substack. It's just slow and boring is the name of the Substack. On his uh, relationship, Musk's relationship to China and Tesla. Mm -hmm. And what that might mean for Twitter and the this kind of, I think, uncomplicated notion of Musk as this free speech savior, mm -hmm. it's an interesting post. And Iglesias takes Apple to task. He takes, you know... Uh, uh, American corporations test generally for talking good game, but then when it comes to access to that Chinese market, kind of they're not doing what Rumble did, yeah, right? Just right. leaving France, right? Right. I, I thought it was, I had no idea that uh, Apple TV just had a policy against any of its shows there being any kind of uh, content uh, that's anti-China or anti uh, yeah, the CCP. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, the, Musk's in it to run a business, right, and to make a profit. Mm -hmm. He over. I think it's well, fair to says, say he overpaid he says, for Twitter. He says billion. that's not his motivation, but... <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> Tesla's his baby, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think he's kind of over-leveraged on Twitter, and that could cost Tesla if he doesn't start making a profit on Twitter. And part of the one of the ways to make a profit is to, um, at least the argument on Twitter happening right now, is to censor in a certain mm -hmm. case, or to, or to make it a, a place where a lot of people want to be. So he's he's got this strategy, and, and this is something I want to get your guys' perspective on, because I do remember 2011 yeah. and seeing the Arab Spring and all the takes that you know, social media is democratizing the world. Right. That went away, and I wonder if it's, if it's because people have gotten more toxic on social media, and that could be part of it, or there really is a bot problem, a troll problem, where authoritarian governments or bad actors have figured out a way to manipulate the conversation by creating inauthentic accounts that amplify the trolls as a way to sow discord. 
I'm, I'm just curious what you guys think about it. Because when Musk and his Twitter team on Twitter right now are talking about uh, solving free speech, part of it is eliminating the bots. Right. Aaron, you want to first swing at this one? I'll jump in otherwise. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, when it, when it comes to bots, um, you know, that does, I, I do have concerns about that. Um, you know, I do on the have, anonymous speech front, just trying to authenticate accounts. Well, yeah. So I mean, so so with the argument on one side, right, is that um, you know, if we if we authenticate uh, if we authenticate accounts, mm -hmm. right, then um, they, you know we ensure that we don't have these kind of like uh, just a lot of, a lot of in, uh, inauthentic accounts, or you have one person or one government that's creating a bunch of mm -hmm. uh, accounts that don't actually each represent like a real. Uh, individual person, mm -hmm. um, and you know, there, there's an argument there that that's uh, to to restrict that isn't isn't anti-free speech mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you know it's not it, it's kind of like an artificial uh, scenario where you mm -hmm. have all these. But of course, but then you have there's authentic accounts raises concerns about right uh, um, the right to anonymous speech. Um, you know, if you make it easier for uh, uh, the platform and foreign governments to uh, identify users uh, and and then take action, you know, retaliate against users for their speech. Uh, that, that's a big problem. That's why the First Amendment right protects anonymous speech. It's so that people can speak out, can speak out against the government, against uh, power, um, without having to worry about um, uh, political or, or economic retaliation and harassment. Yeah, especially if you're operating in one of those foreign countries, the authoritarian yeah, yeah. foreign countries you were talking about before. I I, I do wonder. So Greg's, you know, lab in the looking glass series, it's important to know the world as it actually is. I do wonder if the existence of bots manipulates the world. Sure. So it's hard to know the right. world as it actually is. You're not actually hearing from other citizens participating in a democratic process. You're hearing from Joe Schmo, who's marshaled a bot army to make it sound like his minority viewpoint is a majority viewpoint. That's right. Exactly. And I think that's true even without bots of Twitter generally, right? How fascinating has it been for the past five years when you see those estimates of, the number of registered accounts on Twitter and the number of people who actually speak, right? Mm -hmm. Most of folks on Twitter are lurkers. And Nico, I just sent you yesterday, and Aaron, I'll forward it to you today, uh, that recent uh, Charlie uh, Wurzel post he writes over at The Atlantic about tech and social media, et cetera. And he had this interesting post about what he called um, <laughs> like geriatric social media, yeah. right? That sooner or later, like social media is just fundamentally conversations between human beings. And sometimes conversations turn boring, right? Sometimes, you know, you've just been talking to the same people for a long time. And he made this point about Twitter. He's like, most of the people he knows who are what he called Twitter power users are now power lurkers because there's a script, right? In 2011, it was new and fresh. In 2022, as uh, Wurzel says, you know what everybody's going to say. You know there's going to be a main character for the day. You can predict what these folks on the left are going to say, what these folks on the right are going to say. And it's just all kind of this, you know, charade at this point, right? It's very kind of... I don't know, been done. It's predictable. And at some point, young people, and this is where you and I got into it, Nico, are just going to say, why the hell would I want to waste my time participating in this, you know, increasingly boring, increasingly old, increasingly insular community, right? If you ever spend too much time on Twitter, and I, for the record, quit. Uh, <laughs> I don't year, know, Will. I hear, about, I hear from you about things you've seen on Twitter. So you lurk you, it. I, I, I will log on once in a while. People will send me things. But I, I took... Um, uh, the advice uh, <laughs> of Caitlin Flanagan a year ago and quit, basically, mostly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so you think, 
whenever you try and talk about Twitter to people who aren't on Twitter, you sound like a crazy person, right? Like, here's the latest thing, and then so-and-so said this. And if people aren't on Twitter, they don't know about it. I think the vast majority of people aren't on Twitter. The vast majority of young people are signing up for TikTok and other more interesting things, right? So maybe Twitter is increasingly unimportant, and if that's the case, I mean, it still is important, right? Lots of powerful people, big media folks yeah. on there, academics, et cetera. But, you know... I'll be just very curious to see where Musk's bet goes, right? Yeah. I don't know if you're trying to make something safe for advertisers, safe for users, and I mean safe, like, quote, unquote, safe. Yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll so, see. Well, you know, sometimes I want, you know, the people who you often hear the complaint about Twitter is just this hellscape, right? And it's, it's just terrible. It's so toxic. Um, and by the way, those compla- people are saying that now, right. and it's going to happen with Musk. But people were saying that constantly before. Yeah, yeah took, it's, took a, it's a hard So I don't know, we're, maybe we're just going to a lower circle of the hellscape now. Twitter, Twitter's us, but, been, yeah, a hellscape, hell site but, since like at least 2012. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, but also when I hear that, like I, I actually like Twitter, but because you do have a lot of room to curate your experience on the platform, right? So if it's so toxic, like maybe you're... But now they're recommending a lot of stuff well, that's for me. True. It's like I, mean, it used to, I used to be able to follow accounts and my feed was those accounts. But now most of what I see in my accounts are like, someone who I follow liked this yeah. and now it's yeah, in my yeah, feed. Yeah, it's, yeah. And maybe there's a way on the back end to curate that, but it's not, it's, it's not the experience I've curated as, for as, myself. As soon as you, you stop being able to see things in chronological order from the people you follow and have that be it, I thought, mm, yeah, here we go, look out. Yeah. Whereas something like TikTok, right, which is, somebody, it's, it's, I think it's the Warsaw piece. They said the video, and hello to everybody who's watching on video, right? <laughs> <laughs> the video is such an uh, informationally dense medium that it communicates all kinds of subtext and interesting uh, points without even uh, the written word, without even the, the verbal acknowledgement of what's going on, that that is so much more powerful, is particularly for younger folks who are spending more of their time on it, that Twitter might just, you know, all social media sites have a lifespan. You know what I mean? It, it, we'll, well see. Well, I mean, isn't it just a true, in general, over history that once anything becomes too popular, right, or among older people than the younger generation, <laughs> right, has exactly. to move on to something new? Well, that's Facebook like, right now. It's like exactly it, the only people I see posting on it are people right. you know over sixty. It's like my grandma's on there all the time, sending me messages. Yeah. And like I got an eight-year-old. Is my eight-year-old ever going to have a Facebook account? Probably not. I would. Is my eight-year-old ever going to log on to Twitter? I don't know. And my five-year-old, I'll say, definitely not. <laughs> and I think the same thing's starting to happen with Instagram. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems, it, particularly over the last couple of months, like it's no longer the platform it was. TikTok's taking off. Fire spends a lot of, creates a lot of content for TikTok that's only put on TikTok, so I encourage yeah. our viewers to check it out. Yeah, speaking of that, I should say everybody should subscribe to Fire's social media accounts, which are not dying, which are alive <laughs> and well. And, and in which like Will Creeley is a main character, <laughs> right. of yeah, course, cheers, in our right. Lawyer Up video series. <laughs> yeah. But I... I mean, I'm curious to see where the Musk stuff all goes. I think he's going to be pressured on the financial side um, to not take the free speech maximalist position that he was articulating in the spring. Um, Do I think it'll probably be better than what it was before where they're, you know, shutting down stories about Hunter Biden's laptop or tagging uh, theories about COVID as misinformation? Probably not. And might some of the people who are who got banned from Twitter um, be brought back, like Jordan Peterson? Mm-hmm. I'd say probably, but I don't think Musk will take that maximalist position. And he's already started to walk it back. We'll see. He's a mercurial guy, right? Like he waves with the wind, but he's also a very successful businessman. So Twitter might end up becoming something entirely different from what it is now. He talked about making it the X.com everything app. Mm-hmm. Uh, We'll see. We'll see where that goes. We shall indeed. But we could spend this whole conversation talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. I want to move now to PayPal, which was 
another big story over the past month, PayPal put out a new, what, what was it called? User agreement? Um, uh, acceptable, acceptable use, use policy. policy. Yeah. yeah, acceptable use policy. Proposed changes to the acceptable use. Yeah. Well, it wasn't proposed changes, right, Aaron? Because they sent an email to all of their users that said that they were making updates. Well, let's to say the, intended changes. They, yeah. they, they were never actually implemented, but yeah, they sent notice of upcoming changes. This the, was at the end of September. These yeah. would go into effect on November 3rd. And the new policy, and this is something that you wrote, Aaron, for our blog, and, and a blog is titled, PayPal is no pal to free speech. Um, it would it dramatically expand PayPal's power to take action against users for activity on the service involving di disfavored speech. That includes, quote, any messages, content, or materials that in PayPal's sole discretion are harmful or objectionable, depict or even appear to depict nudity, depict, promote, or incite hatred or discrimination of protected groups, present a risk to a user's well-being, and promote misinformation, or in PayPal's opinion, and this is the exception that swallows the rule, it's otherwise unfit for publication. And that's, that's kind of a cobbling together of all the quotes, but it's directionally correct. Those are the categories of speech that would have been prohibited yeah. under this acceptable use policy. And anyone who violated it would be subject to a $2,500 fine deducted from their accounts. Now, PayPal quickly walked this back. Aaron, so can you talk a little bit about that and how FIRE was thinking about this issue in our rapid response meetings? Because you've, yeah. you've done a lot of the work on this front for us. Right, yeah. So um, they, like you said, they walked it back. There was a lot of criticism. Um, the stock these, tanked. Yeah, uh, and there was criticism from FIRE uh, uh, about this. Um, and uh, so, you know, we also, you know, I, I was the, the primary author on a report that we re recently, it's on FIRE's website about um, free speech and online payment processors. You know, this is, this is an issue with the expansion that um, we've been focus on, focusing on more broadly, um, the role of, of online intermediaries and how they can, you know, they can create a very restrictive speech environment because uh, they, uh, you know, they exercise so much control uh, over, our, over our lives, essentially, you know, our ability to access the internet, um, our ability, you know, in the case of payment processes, processors like PayPal and Venmo, our ability to, to send and receive money. Um, and and or with the Cloudflare, which protects against denial of service attacks, right, the ability right. to stay on the internet um, yeah. when you're subject to, you know, denial of service attacks. Right, right. I mean, yeah, domain registries, you know, all, all sorts of, of, of online infrastructure. Um, um, so, and with payment processors, you know, it's, it's essential to so many things. I mean, content, online content creators, right? They, they use services like PayPal to raise money and make a living for what they do. Um, nonprofit organizations like FIRE, right? Like we use PayPal to raise, uh, to raise money. Um, and, and just everyday Americans, right? They, they use these services all the time to buy and, and sell things online. So if these companies uh, get in the business of policing uh, users' speech and viewpoints, then, you know, that can uh, be very uh, corrosive uh, to a culture of free expression, e even if they have the legal ability to do it. And so, you know, FIRE's uh, position here is that, you know, even if you have the legal ability to do it, you shouldn't. Um, and th there are good reasons why uh, they shouldn't get into that game. And, you know, I think, you know, and one thing I like to point out is that even if you're kind of comfortable, and this goes for social media, I think, too, even if you're comfortable with the current regime of censorship that's taking place because maybe your views aren't the ones that are, you know, uh, being targeted, mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't rely on <laughs> the, you know, your favorite 
tech company having a CEO who's sympathetic to your views for all time. And like case in point, Twitter, right? All the people that are now worried about Elon Musk taking over because uh, you know his perceived lurch to the right side of the political spectrum. Well, if you know if he was if if Elon was, you know, uh, you know, going to start instituting uh, policies or practices that censor based on viewpoint, what kind of viewpoints do you think he's going to censor, yeah. right? So, um, so yeah, I think it's 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 really concerning with with, uh, the, 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 with PayPal and, and companies like that. Well, it's no surprise that their policies, which are vague, uh, broad, and opaque, are being applied to their users in opaque ways. Like mm -hmm. Free Speech Union, which is a UK group started by Toby Young, had its PayPal account suspended or taken down. Um, Toby Young had his personal account taken down. And then their, their news and opinion website, The Daily Skeptic, had their PayPal account taken down. And PayPal didn't give them a reason why. Mm -hmm. And when PayPal spokespeople uh, were asked for comment, they sort of just gave a broad platitude to, the, to free expression, but also protecting diversity in, in all its various in various forms. But other things, you know, you have PayPal's greatest hits in your broader piece, but it includes things like shutting down writer Colin Wright's account shortly after Etsy had banned his account. And there seems to be a snowball effect, like a domino effect, where one, account, one um, online platform does it and then all the others follow. They also uh, shut down or gave a warning to an ebook distributor who wrote to remove certain works of erotic fiction. Yeah. Right. What about the heavy metal band, Nico? Get that one in there. Yeah, PayPal suspended a user for buying a t-shirt from ISIS. Yeah. The heavy metal band. Yeah, ISIS, <laughs> right. the heavy metal band, that's right. So they kind of have a ham-fisted algorithm that probably does some yeah. work for them too, but you can't get answers yeah. from them. If you ask them, like, I believe it was Colin Wright or Toby Young asked them why their account was suspended, and they said, you need to either have an attorney or law enforcement officer submit a legal subpoena. Yeah, I think that was Colin Wright. Right? Yeah. So you can't even find out. And then you, in the meantime, your money's locked up. Right. And some people, when this poli acceptable use policy came up, tried to shut down their PayPal accounts. We were seeing reports that they couldn't. They were not allowed to do it. So Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you raise a good point about there's due process concerns, too, where users don't receive meaningful notice. Uh, they don't, uh, about why uh, the service took action against them. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't get detailed reasons. It's usually just, you violate our policy. And that's it. Um, and then they may also not have a, a meaningful opportunity to appeal the decision, you know, present evidence from their side. Um, like if you don't know why you were banned, then it's kind of tough to appeal the decision. Um, so, you know, I think that that only kind of exacerbates the situation. Yeah. Well, Aaron, and I want to ask you about this. Well, you mentioned kind of these are online intermediaries and they have the legal right to do it, at least for now. Um, but they shouldn't. How do you think about these online entities like social media platforms, internet e intermediaries? Like, how, how, did, how should we think about their duties to free expression more, more generally, Will? Well, that's a great question. It's one that Aaron and I have been hammering around uh, internally with uh, you, Nico, and, and Fire President Greg Lukianoff, and uh, our, our Director of Legislative Policy, Joe Cohn, Ronnie London, uh, our General Counsel, who worked on uh, kind of uh, these issues for years over at Davis Wright Tremaine. And it's been kind of the fun, freewheeling debate um, that we've had over the past few months of like how to differentiate or distinguish uh, between uh, infra internet infrastructure like Cloudflare, uh, Cloudfire, Cloudflare? Cloudflare. Cloudflare, thank you yeah. very much. And uh, <laughs> old man over <laughs> And uh, uh, Twitter and social And you're not media. the only one that confuses that. Right. I hear that confused all the time. And there might be actually another 
company called Cloudfire. Well, there, so the Cloudflare CEO, again, shout out to Jillian C. York, who co-authored a great uh, EFF statement, Electronic Frontier Foundation statement on internet infrastructure and the importance of viewpoint neutrality and clear terms of service for internet infrastructure like PayPal, like uh, your Amazon Web Services, like you know the, the nuts and bolts of things that make the internet work. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can put those in one camp and then put the uh, social media platforms and other things in another camp, right? Like one of the concerning things from that Fifth Circuit opinion in uh, NetChoice v. Paxton for me was the idea... And this is what the case that we talked about, we debated two right, weeks ago. exactly, or, with, or, with, with uh, Ilya and... Ilya and... Bradley Smith. Bradley Smith, thank yeah, you. Yeah, so former much. FCC chair. Of course. <laughs> so, but the idea that, that social media platforms, as advanced by Judge uh, Andrew Oldham in that Fifth Circuit opinion, are kind of common carriers, right? If you're a big, powerful uh, social media company with X number of users, the state of Texas says, you got to let everybody come in. You're going to deal with certain viewpoint neutrality uh, rules enforced by the state. And we're going to essentially treat you in the same way that we treat uh, bus services or phone lines, right? You're available to everybody. You can't censor speech. And I think that's really concerning uh, on that front because I think that what Twitter does and may continue to do, as we were just talking about, is provide some curation, provide some editorial discretion, provide some work on the algorithm side of things, or sometimes even on the manual side of things, to make sure that users' feeds reflect their interest and reflect a certain kind of uh, site that Twitter wants to create, right? I think that's a big difference from PayPal. No one's using PayPal uh, because they think, you know, PayPal aligns with my values, or PayPal has some expressive message, right? Or PayPal is somehow... Uh, involved in communicating uh, an idea, right? We use PayPal because it's a bank and it's an easy way to pay people, right? That's yeah. the bottom line. So I think, and like, likewise, you use you know, Amazon Web Services or Cloudflare because you want your site to load. And I think we get into really dicey territory if we, first of all, start conflating the two, right? If we start thinking of Twitter and PayPal as the same thing, they're not the same thing. And if we start uh, allowing uh, the state to come in with heavy-handed, ham-fisted solutions to... Uh, questions about viewpoint neutrality or uh, equal uh, application of uh, terms of service or user moderation policies uh, between the two. So, again, check out this Jillian C. York uh, co-authored piece for EFF, but her basic point was you need transparency and consistency and viewpoint neutrality with regard to uh, internet infrastructure, and I think that's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to uh, websites that are social media platforms, I think you think of them more like, this is an imperfect analogy, but more like newspapers, right? Where they are, they're doing some, some editorial function that is protected by the First Amendment. They've got their own capacity uh, as a private business to pick and choose which users come. And if you don't like it, you start Rumble or you start Getter or True Social or whatever, right? I think that's kind of more the, the First Amendment consistent uh, First Amendment uh, principle uh, that, that arises out of the case law, arises out of our, I think, common understandings of free speech. Uh, that's that's where I'd like to go with. Well, it's interesting. Is there any comparison, like analog comparison, to some of the debates happening around Masterpiece Cake Shop case and mm -hmm. the 303 Creative case? Although it seems like the uh, political valence of those issues are flipped when you bring it into analog as opposed to digital. When you think right. that in the in the digital side, you have conservatives, not all of them, of course, right. but some of them who are arguing that social media companies op op operate as common carriers, mm -hmm. right, and should be allowed to be regulated yeah. by the state. Um, and the left is saying, no, these you know, have an editorial function. They have a particular message they're trying, trying to send. They need to have the freedom to you know, associate and express themselves uh, under the First Amendment. But if and I'm a wedding website designer, can I put up a message saying that I don't serve same-sex couples 
Conservatives would say yes. And conservatives would say yes, and and uh, and folks on the left would say no. Yeah, no. I think that the through line is yes. You're allowed to put up that message. The the market will sort it out, right? If you don't, if there are plenty of other graphic uh, uh, designers or website designers in the state of Colorado, and you go find the one that will serve you, and we'll be happy to serve you. I mean, that's and then the analog is, of course, there are places of public accommodation which do not have an expressive component. Hotels, yeah. banks, right. Um, that is comparable to the intermediaries or the, uh, what have we been calling them internally, the middleware, yeah, middleware right. in, the, in the digital environment. So, uh, But we've had fun fights at FIRE about this, right? Yeah. I mean, folks out there, right, when we come to the public, we have a unified message. But, man, making that sausage can be a lot of fun internally because we all come with the general understanding and principle that we're here to protect expressive rights. But the contours of that, right, and the... The nuts and bolts are how we think about the doctrine and its growth and where we'd like things to go and what our plan is uh, as uh, a freedom of expression advocacy group that believes in not just law but also culture. I mean, that's fascinating. You know, we've had, we've had fun debates in here. Yeah. Well, I want to put a bow on this, Aaron. I want you to kind of bring this PayPal story full, full circle. So we talked about how PayPal reversed after intense public backlash, tanking stock price, its, its updates to the acceptable use policy. But that's not the end of the story because they eliminated the fine, the $2,500 fine for spreading misinformation. But some of the other stuff that was in that acceptable use policy still remains in what, a user agreement or something? They've got multiple policies that isn't confusing the shit out of people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us where, where well, that's all yeah. landed? There's been a lot of what you might call misinformation going around, I think, because, <laughs> because the policies are, are, are kind of confusing. And yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's two different policies that people have been scouring for you know bad provisions and one is one is the acceptable use policy that we've been that's the one that we've been talking about that they were going to make all these changes including adding uh, the prohibition on promoting misinformation um, the other one is the PayPal user agreement which you know you have to, to you have to uh, click and agree to to, to use the service um, and so people found that after PayPal walked back the changes to the acceptable use policy that well actually the user agreement has a ban on, um, it says users may not provide false, inaccurate, or misleading information in connection with their use of PayPal services or in their interactions with PayPal, other PayPal customers, or third parties, which is kind of weird <laughs> and vague. Um, so, so people are saying, oh, look, they actually brought the misinformation thing back. But this was actually a provision that had already existed in the user agreement that I think people were just discovering. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, it, PayPal would do well to re revise that provision because it's not clear. W when you look in a user agreement, that is surrounded by like prohibitions on fraudulent activity. Like commercial fraud. So, yeah, so it yeah. might just be intended to say like, well, you know, when you're selling a product through PayPal, you can't state false information about it, right? Yeah. Commercial fraud. Yeah. Um, but the way it's written, I mean, it, it could conceivably be interpreted to reach broader uh, so-called misinformation, political, you know, the, all the political misinformation that's become a trend now in, yeah. in, in like trying to fight back against that. Um, so, um, so and you, yeah, and you would be right to be, to be wary of that, considering yeah. how it's been exercised against people like exactly. Colin Wright yeah. and Toby Young in the Free Speech Union yeah. and the purveyors of erotic fiction. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? And then and the, the other thing to mention is just that the acceptable use policy also already had a couple of provisions in there um, that are still there now about you know you can't um, basically like a hate speech prohibition yeah. is in there. Um, there's a prohibition against uh, certain sexually oriented materials. Yeah. Uh, is that clause so, about otherwise unfit for publication still 
I think that was that was just one of the new ones. That's yeah, that was a crazy. Yeah, basically saying anything. Yeah, right. So we'll see where we'll see where that story goes. One of the things that surprises me about the work we've been doing in rapid response, and we kind of anticipated that tech and the electronic frontier to take a phrase from our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation was gonna be kind of where the cutting edge free speech discussions were happening. But I didn't anticipate it would be this much of our conversations every morning. Uh, Which brings me to our next topic, which is the New York Attorney General recommending restrictions on live streaming. So the the shooting happened in Buffalo uh, in October, the tragic shooting that killed 10 people. And coming out of that, uh, the New York Attorney General and uh, lawmakers in the state of New York kind of figured out ways to try and prevent that sort of thing from happening again in the future. And one of the things that happened during that shooting, if I'm understanding the facts correctly, is that the the shooter live streamed the shooting for two minutes before Facebook caught it and or took it down. Twitch, yeah. Or Twitch. Was it Twitch? Yeah. Yeah. And took it down. And so coming out of that, the New York Attorney General has recommended uh, changes to the law that would limit live streaming abilities um, on certain certain platforms. They, the report recommends, for example, that live streaming be limited to people who have been verified or who have a sufficient number of followers uh, or that they implement a tape delay like you see in some but not all broadcast television um, and that there would be civil liability for individual and platforms who do not abide by that law. The report also includes recommendations that Congress, for example, reform Section 230 to require platforms to, quote, take reasonable steps to prevent unlawful, violent violent criminal content and the solicitation and incitement thereof from appearing on the platform in order to reap the benefits of Section 230. This recommendation hasn't been adopted by the state legislature yet, so nothing's happened with it. And the New York AG does have no control over Section 230, which is a federal law, uh, of course. But it is concerning, right? Um, it does raise some significant free speech questions. For example, the report conflates inspiring criminal acts with inciting them. The latter, of course, being an unprotected speech if it meets the, the Brandenburg standard for incitement to imminent lawless action. What else, you know, yeah, concerns you about this? Well, one? there's a lot, right? So, you know, first of all, I want to say as a proud native of Buffalo, New York, who was just in Buffalo last weekend, who, I, yep, I got my, my Bills Cup here and I... I have friends who have family who are among uh, uh, those killed, so this feels personal. But uh, one thing that anybody who works in civil liberties knows is that after a tragedy, uh, and this surely was one in in many awful respects, uh, the urge to restrict civil liberties is always at its strongest, right? I think we have to do something. So this feels like a well-intentioned but misguided effort to do something. Isn't there something we can do? Because obviously live streaming a mass shooting is a horrible act. Uh, But as we know, uh, civil liberties, uh, when they are threatened, uh, it's at their weakest point, right? And so think, what could the possible value be of streaming something like this? Well, uh, (laughs) the possible value, if you think about it for a minute, what about police brutality, right? What about the ways that capturing images uh, or live streaming uh, stops or uh, public time. demonstrations in real time have changed the accountability for uh, police brutality or for law enforcement, uh, over-enforcement, over et cetera, right? So you think about what would be lost with a policy like this and the hands in which it would fall. If we allow the government to uh, control live streaming this way, then we lose the ability to act as a check uh, on government abuse in serious ways and also just to you know, say just the expressive medium uh, is threatened. 
uh, the right of folks to get out there and spread their message is threatened. So you lose a lot of core political important speech that we think we'd all agree is protected by giving the government the keys in this particular way uh, to drive this vehicle in this particular way. So I understand it, uh, and, and I, I feel the, the hurt from which it is sprung, but uh, again, that's when folks who care about civil liberties need to be on their highest guard right after a tragedy. Uh, somebody once said, you know, be, be, aware, uh, be wary of any law that's named after somebody who's been tragically killed because it might have been passed in a rush, it might have been passed at a moment where emotions are understandably extremely high, and there's often an opportunity for uh, encroachments upon civil liberties at that particular moment, right? So I think this is one of those cases. Uh, I think that the uh, threat to uh, free expression is real here, uh, and I think uh, if, if this was passed, it would be challenged, uh, and it would lose that challenge. Those are my quick thoughts on it. Well, well Aaron, you're working on a piece for FIRE, uh on this, this law and sort of the general issue, w wouldn't this effectively shut down streaming platforms like Twitch that require and for their effective function, real-time engagement? Like you're playing a video game, yeah. users need to be able to respond as you're playing the game, right? Right, right, so, yeah. So it would just render the platforms unusable. Yeah, yeah. For, as a for practical a lot, matter. For a lot of streamers at least, like, yeah, it's true that, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of live streamers on, on, yeah, on the platform Twitch, um, you know, on YouTube, who use YouTube Live, um, they they kind of rely on that engagement with their audience. Mm -hmm. um, that that's part of what how they build a community, how they you know, um, and how they get support um, and followers uh, is you know through that through that real time engagement. So uh, you can't have that if you have a forced tape delay, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or broadcast delay. Um, so uh, you know, and and another. You know, and you were working on a piece on this, right? Or was it yeah, with with uh, Ryan, Ryan, yeah, uh, Ryan Weiss here at Fire. Um, but uh, you know, and the other thing is that you know, the the recommendations are to uh, restrict, you know, impose this broadcast delay just on unfair, unverified users or users who don't have like a threshold number of followers. Uh, so it's essentially, you know, you're essentially discriminating against unpopular streamers or people, right. and and. and and, and a handicapping their ability to become to a popular achieve, to become a popular <laughs> right. yeah. yeah and, and um, it, it's also a mirror image again with different motives and a, a different impetus to the same kind of state oversight and mandates that we uh, are wary of in the fifth circuit case we were just talking about a minute ago right with the state of texas saying you if you get to be this big social media platform you have these restrictions now imposed on you by the state about the kind of content you can you can uh, you can uh, publish and, and the kinds of rules that you can uh, that you must impose same thing here right yeah. you know and and it's uh, equally troubling i think yeah. and and also when you think about the like is this yeah i don't want to get too much into whether like these restrictions would actually be effective in achieving their their goals, I mean, I personally don't think that they would be. Well, no. Twitch took uh, it down after two minutes. Right. You know, yeah. they yeah. they they saw it, they flagged it. They were. I mean, listen, I I was a high school senior in 1999, and that's Columbine. Yeah. And there was no streaming then, and there have been shootings since then, and it, it's it, the streaming and the copycat nature of it existed before. I mean, the 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 copycat nature of school shootings existed before streaming. And, you know, I, I don't think you take away streaming and all of a sudden we're good. Yeah. That's, that's a sad reality of it. Yeah. Right, right. This, feel, this feels like dealing with a symptom rather than an underlying cause. Right. Yeah, and it also assumes that the people who would be liable to copycat are happening to watch that particular stream real time. Because you just have to assume that once this happens or after it's shut down, 
the video is going to be taken down. It's not going to be there. So who is it, to use their words, inspiring? It's an awful, ugly thing. And again, I understand the legislative impulse here to do something. I get it. But uh, yeah, I, I think it would be ineffective in addition to being unconstitutional. Yeah, I, th I think just one other thing that I think it's important to point out about this like inspiring versus incitement. Like there's a reason that that exception to the, the exception to the First Amendment is is incitement, uh, imminent incitement, uh, act, or speech that's directed to uh, imminent causing imminent lawless action and is likely to to do so. Yeah. Right. So so these this restriction these restrictions wouldn't satisfy that imminence requirement. I mean, nobody watches one of these videos and immediately grabs their gun and, and goes out and commits a, a copycat crime. Right. Now now. Could it inspire people to eventually do something like that down the line? I mean, maybe, yeah. but you know, the, but there's good reason why we we draw the line where we do. I think you know, talking about inspiring violent acts is is kind of um, reminiscent of like the old bad. I was just gonna say we get back to or, we get back to Whitney v. California and Justice right, Brandeis, right? The, the, well, the test that the, the Supreme Court th discarded almost as quickly as it had adopted because it, you know it was so you know uh, restricting speech that would have a bad tendency to produce acts that the government has the power to outlaw, right? But how is that applied? It was applied against uh, uh, socialists uh, distributing pamphlets calling for the overthrow of our capitalist society. It was applied uh, against people protesting World War One. And and uh, uh, Eugene Debs, you know, locked yeah. up for talking to steel workers uh, or for uh, train workers, saying they are fit for something better than cannon fodder. Yeah, no, I, you don't want to give the government that. Yeah, these sort of amorphous, inspiring. I mean, that's what was used to go after Ozzy Osbourne for suicide solution, right? Yeah, like, right. It's, uh, it's, right. the more Swallows things change, up. the more th the more the arguments change, the more they're the same, right? Uh, just in different contexts. Right, I, and you know, on that point, that's a great point because it, it, it gets back to Hudnut and uh, Professor uh, Catherine McKinnon and Andrew Dworkin and their idea that if you allow pornography, pornography will warp people's brains in a certain way that violence against women and violence against others will, will be the natural result. So always that line, and that's a great point, Aaron, that it has to be imminent, right? That we, have, we say it has to be imminent and likely to produce the unlawful action the government can regulate. And here, turning off the, uh, the, the stream or having a tape delay on the stream, yeah, yeah, doesn't meet it. All right. Last topic for today. It is a uh, mercifully not a <laughs> yeah, right. topic. Uh, this is an old school prohibition on public employee speech. So yeah. on Monday, October 17th, the Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia, City Council issued a new personnel part policy regarding on and off duty conduct and speech for city employees. This came in the wake of one city employee joining the January 6th riot right. at the Capitol. Right. Uh, the employee was investigated, never charged with a crime. The city had a lot of public pressure to fire this employee, but ultimately did not, mm -hmm. presumably because they thought that the, the policy um, that they had in place for on and off-duty conduct didn't reach this employee's activity. So they implemented a new policy that presumably was done so that they could target that sort of conduct. Yeah, it was definitely done. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And, and the term, so they, they issued this new policy uh, regarding conduct, and the term conduct, as used in the section, includes internet and social media communication. So, as is often the case with conduct, it reaches expression. Uh, and it says that employees should refrain from the following conduct on and off duty, conduct that impairs discipline or harmony among coworkers, conduct that impairs the performance of the employee's job duties, conduct that impairs city business operations, disclosure of confidential or sensitive government information, and conduct that undermines close working relationships that are essential to the effective performance of an employee's job 
duties. Now, Will, you had an op-ed yeah. in, in the Daily Progress, which is a local paper in Charlottesville, Virginia, saying, one, this is a bad idea, and two, this is unconstitutional, Will. So why is it both of those? Yeah, it's a bad idea, first of all, because, again, it's this kind of the common theme of our conversation here this morning. Maybe this is the common theme of free speech work in general. You're handing the state a pretty big hammer to wield against uh, dissenting or critical voices, right? Let's say you work for the city uh, of Charlottesville and you have an opinion that your boss doesn't like. Maybe you're a Black Lives Matter bumper sticker person and your boss is a Blue Lives Matter bumper sticker person and you drive your car and your boss sees your bumper sticker and maybe you put your bumper sticker on after your boss did and your boss says, well, wait a second, I don't like your views, right? At this point, maybe you have, quote unquote, impaired discipline or harmony among coworkers. And if you have this free floating policy out there, uh, then you may be subject to discipline for it. And the idea that um, uh, th th this policy is constitutional because some of these factors track case law, well, the, the problem is, is that the case law says that if you are engaged in conduct that has impaired discipline and harmony, right, post, <laughs> post facto, right, uh, that past tense impaired, right, and you come to, come to work and they can say, no, no, you impaired discipline and harmony, here's the problems, here's how it's impacted your job, our interest in efficient operations outweighs your First Amendment interest here. That's all done post facto here. The problem with these kinds of policies, and Charlottesville is, is a great example of this, is that it acts as a prior restraint, right? It, it, it takes effect and tells employees what they can't say before they've even spoken. So that... It, Which is the sort of conduct or the sort of speech restriction that the First Amendment frowns on the most. The most. Strict scrutiny. It's, government's got a very heavy burden to bear, uh, very heavy burden to bear on these. And, the, and in, the, in a case... Um, called the National Treasury uh, Employees Union of the United States, uh, the Supreme Court said that uh, these kinds of far-reaching bans on what public employees can say off the clock, these regulations off the clock, in that case it involved honorariums uh, for uh, government employee speech off the clock. And you know, the plaintiffs were folks who you know, wrote about, uh, for example, I think one of them was a lecturer on Quaker uh, issues and was sometimes paid modest sums for his public lectures, you know, and somebody else I think wrote advice columns, so those kinds of things, right? They're getting small sums, but they would have been banned by that policy. And so the, the Supreme Court said, well, this is a prior restraint, right? And so absent any kind of evidence that any of these things have happened, you can't just preemptively say you can't talk about this stuff. And there's a great case from the Fourth Circuit that I found uh, that's directly on point here out of Virginia, uh, where you've got two cops who are talking on social media, on Facebook, about uh, what's happening at their department. And one of the cops is saying, you know, these days, all these rookies, all these young cops are getting elevated into leadership positions, and it really is putting the public uh, at, at, in harm's way because they are being counted on to save people's lives, but they just don't have the experience. And they got dinged on a policy that looked quite a bit like this one, uh, and they went and they challenged the, uh, the application of the policy and the policy's constitutionality. It was kind of this broad-reaching social media policy, and the Fourth Circuit agreed with them. They said, look, the government cannot... Uh, in the name of efficient operations, shut down public employee speech off the clock before it happens. And this is a great example. Why? Because that speech is about a matter of public concern. They're talking about you know, community safety and uh, issues of uh, departmental organization, organization operation that are really important. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, the thing is there's a lot of policies like this. This looks a lot like, frankly, the policy that we are currently litigating against uh, in uh, the Collin College case, in uh, the Michael Phillips case, right, where you have a uh, public employee, in that case a community college, putting out a broad ban on all kinds of speech that the uh, employee employer may not like and the government employer may not like. And uh, yeah, I just don't think courts are going to be very friendly to it, nor should they be, right? When you are, whether you're working for 
uh, a community college, a police department, or the city of Charlottesville, when you're off the clock, you're off the clock. You should be able to engage uh, in debate about matters of public concern without your employer uh, breathing down your neck or preemptively telling you to shut up. Yeah. Right. And Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, including criticism of your very employer, right? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, so if you work, you work for a, a government entity, uh, the people who work there are often going to be the people in the best position to know w what's wrong with it, mm -hmm. you know, what can, be, what can be improved or, you know, um, uh, you know uh, or, or act as whistleblowers right. for misconduct within the organization. Uh, but it would be easy for the government uh, uh, to turn around and say, well, you know, by, by engaging that kind of commentary, yeah, you're, you're interfering with our ability to run an efficient operation here. Right. The seminal so, modern, modern government employee speech case, Pickering, is the uh, high school teacher writing the letter to the editor about, you know, the school board and criticizing their spending choices, right? And he would know because he's there. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting case. And uh, we'll, we'll say, too, I was at a uh, law review symposium at uh, Case Western Law Review uh, last week, and, and credit to all the folks who did the great work, it was a great symposium, but there was a uh, local uh, practitioner, uh, Emily Spivak, who's a lawyer there, and was detailing some of the types of incidents that she's had with uh, high school teachers and their social media commentary, and they maintain a policy just like this one, so I think, <laughs> I think there are a lot of these out there, uh, and we shall see what happens to them. I think more litigation is coming as the uh, local municipalities and government entities try to regulate uh, preemptively their, their employee speech. Yeah, that case, that Fourth Circuit case that you mentioned is Liverman v. City of Petersburg. And it was a unanimous panel that said, we do not deny that officers' social media use might present some potential for division within the ranks, particularly given the broad audience on Facebook. Facebook, which, <laughs> as we discussed at the top, might be one of the geriatric this, social This media. is like a 2016 opinion, too, right? I think it's, yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah. It already seems kind of old. Yeah, right. But, but they continue, the speculative ills targeted by the social networking policy are not sufficient to justify such sweeping restrictions on officers' freedom to debate matters of public concern. But even more than that, I mean, just like kind of trying to understand our hyper-polarized age where people are increasingly retreating to their ideological or political camps, you can easily see how a minority political opinion, say, Aaron, you hold a minority pol political opinion that I disagree with vehemently, mm -hmm. could and has all across our society, within families and elsewhere, um, affect harmony, <laughs> affect the relationships between people. Um, and under this policy, it would justify uh, th that minority political opinion, uh, that person getting fired. Uh, which I just does not think is the right thing for a government to do uh, for people participating in the give and take of democratic debate. Um, so we'll see where that one goes. As Will says, it's, <laughs> it's probably not the only policy like no, that. It'll we'll continue see. to be litigated. I like on... that we ended on the analog example. That is you know, an old meat and potatoes free speech issue, right? There's nothing, nothing. well, there, I guess there is kind of something digital about it if you're posting on Facebook, but it felt, it felt old school in a way. And that just goes to show the kind of uh, three months we've had. Yeah. It's been a ride, man. More well, to come. <laughs> well, so we put together these memos about all these different issues. Carrie Robinson, who is um, a rapid response director, does that and it kind of memorializes our position and we use them as talking points to go out there and talk about these issues so staff knows what we're, where we come out. Um, but this is just four of them. I think we've got dozens and dozens of them. But you need to pick and choose when you only have an hour to do something. And, I, and I'd ask our listeners who can reach us at, so to speak, at thefire.org if you enjoy this sort of format. Uh, I think it's interesting. We get to cover a lot of different topics over the course of an hour rather than just one, which is what we traditionally do. So please reach out to us again, so to speak, at thefire.org if you enjoy this, and we'll, we'll, we'll try and do more of them. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is our Fire Student Network has this new program going on called Fire Scholars where we bring in 
uh, five different students at colleges and universities across the country and work with them in an in-depth way to kind of generate free speech programming on their campuses. And I just wanted to make a plug for one of these programs that's being put on by uh, Rohan Krishnan over at Yale. He's got a new podcast out called Voices of the World, which interviews international Yale students about awesome. free, free expression issues Go, abroad. Uh, so I just encourage our listeners who enjoy this podcast to go and check out what Ron's doing. Uh, great guy. Really great guy. Yeah. Excellent podcast. Again, it's called Voices of the World, and I'll link it in the show notes. Check it out. And if you're interested in the Fire Scholars program, you can email us. Uh, we've already got our class for this year, but perhaps future classes we can bring you aboard. We provide training and uh, support as you're kind of putting together speaking events on campus. I'm speaking at one uh, either at Brown or Northeastern. I'm speaking at both colleges on back-to-back -back days, but one of them is a Fire Scholars program. So reach out to us again, so to speak, at thefire.org. You know, I didn't know about it. I'm glad you mentioned that because Rohan's a thoughtful dude. I will definitely yeah. check that out. Yeah, yeah Voices. Voices of the World, which I, he sent me a Spotify link, so I know it's there, but cool. it's probably on other platforms as well. Guys, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know we've all got meetings coming up here. Uh, Who knows what lurks in our inboxes, right? When we get out <laughs> of here. I'm always like, yeah. oh boy, what we did I miss? Talking. I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. <laughs> uh, so this podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by my colleagues, Chris Maltby, who's behind camera two, one, I don't know what we'll call it, and Aaron Reese, who's behind the other camera, which I'm looking into. Hi, Aaron. Uh, to learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. Most of our episodes, including this one, can be found on our YouTube channel, which is now distinct from the FIRE YouTube channel for strategic reasons, which we can get into, namely that we're trying to curate a certain type of content on our FIRE channel and a certain type of content on our So To Speak channel to drive YouTube subscribers. And if you don't subscribe to FIRE's YouTube channel or to the So To Speak channel, please do. Get on that. Get on it. Get on it. But we're also on Instagram. You can find us by searching uh, the handle Free Speech Talk. It's also the handle on Twitter. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And again, feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, as we talked about with the social media companies, if you leave a positive review, the podcast gets put in front of other people who might be interested in this podcast. So it's the best way to get this show and the messages that we send uh, to new audiences. And if and you did enjoy it, just my email is will at thefire.org. I'm always on. Just shoot me a line and we can talk it out. <laughs> that's actually his email, too. Yes, so will he, at thefire.org. There yep. you go. He's, see, that's one of the things about fire. Uh, is if you're old school, before a certain time, you just oh. get your first name at thefire.org. Right. Right. No, there's too many Aaron's. Now there's a, couple, yeah, there's a couple Aaron's, there's a couple Will's. You're still the only Nico, though. You I'm still, still the only going. Nico, yeah. but yeah, there, there might be other, because you know, there's multiple ways to spell it. N-I-C-O, N-I-K-K-O. Will at thefire.org, bring, bring me whatever you got. We'll, we'll, we'll talk it out. All right, let's close this one up. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.